Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 26. My name is Owen Bardo. Today we're talking about China in Africa, and my guest is the world's foremost expert on the subject, Deborah Broutingham. Deborah's book, The Dragon's Gift, is a compelling account of how and why China is involved in Africa, both by giving aid and through other economic engagement. I caught up with Deborah at a meeting which we both attended in Addis Ababa, organized by the OECD Development Assistance Committee, the DAG, to share lessons between China and OECD donors. It was such a lovely day that I stupidly decided to record this outside, not realizing that my microphone would pick up so much background noise. I hope you don't find the sound of birdsong and of children playing too distracting, because Deborah's insights into China's role in Africa are very interesting. I found that talking to Deborah and reading her book not only changed my view of what China is up to in Africa, it also made me think again about the approach that Western donors are taking. Deborah, welcome to Development Drums. I'm glad to be here. There's a lot of talk now about China's footprint in Africa, and in your book you basically say that this is exaggerated, both in terms of the aid that China gives and in terms of the economic relations, the uh, lending and the trade. What's your estimate at the moment of, both on the aid side, of how much aid China is giving to Africa, and what's your sense of the other kinds of economic engagement? As a donor right now, China's about the size of Belgium. So it's about a little over a billion dollars a year, but it's growing very quickly. So that's uh, in terms of ODA. That's, yes. That's the official definition of aid. Yes. If, which, of course, China doesn't talk about aid in that sense. But if, if you measured what they give according to the official definition, it would work out at about a billion dollars a year. Yes. Well, that's about a billion dollars this year. This year. Or actually for 2009, it was about a billion dollars. And it's growing. Um, it's was It doubled from 2006 to okay. 2009. But so that's, it's that's pretty small. So, if you, I mean, that's, you know, a third of the Gates Foundation, mm-hmm. roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but that not that in part because a lot of what China is doing around the continent isn't what would be classified as aid under the uh, OECD definition? I think what the Chinese are doing causes us to rethink some of our definitions of what is aid and what isn't aid. Um, Because what they have are very large packages which are financed at a commercial rate, but a very good commercial rate. And some of these packages are tied to their secured by natural resources. So they're not doing that everywhere, but the kinds of packages that we see in Angola or the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and even here in Ethiopia, um, there are very large infrastructure lines of credit are then secured, in the case of the DRC in Angola, with natural resources, and they're at a a commercial rate, which is based on the London interbank offered rate, plus 1% or so. Um, and that doesn't qualify as ODA, and yet it's developmental. And do you have a sense of what kind of scale that's on? I mean, mm. that, because as you travel around Africa, here in Ethiopia, for example, you have a sense of a lot of Chinese economic activity, road building and construction here in Ethiopia, but in other countries that might be investment in ports or factories. Or So um, although it doesn't count as aid and as a donor, China might be rather small. As an economic actor, is that? do you have a sense of the scale of that? As an economic actor, I would say they're very large. And so these um, commercial rate loans are probably on the order of maybe seven to eight billion dollars. 
a year. A year. Mm-hmm. Of, of, that's of money coming in per year. Yes. But that's still, what, a fifth of Western aid to Africa. Well, what's interesting is that there is uh, a fair amount, if you look at Africa, including North Africa, there's a fair amount of finance from the West that is not aid. Right. We have export credits, we have commercial bank loans that have been coming in. Um, again, to look at Angola, there have been commercial bank loans coming into Angola for a long time because they have a commodity that can repay those. And just as with the Chinese, the commercial bank loans have been secured with oil. What I found um, very interesting at the beginning of the book, the first three chapters of your book, are really a history of China's role in Africa, which I uh, I suppose I did know in, uh, at one level that China had been involved in Africa for a long time. We all know about the, um, the railway, the Tanzania-Zambia railway, which began in the year I was born. So that's, um, uh, that's a long time ago. Um, tell us a bit about China's history in Africa and how far back this goes. Because I mean, this is something you've been working on for um, not, not certainly nothing like as long as I've been born, but, but for, nearly 30, <laughs> for nearly 30 years, right? Yes, um, I did start working on this topic in 1983. And I can tell you that at that point, everyone asked me, why are you doing your PhD dissertation on China and Africa? <laughs> there isn't any interest in this topic. Uh, but nonetheless, I did it. So China's been involved in Africa really since the 1950s um, as African countries were going through their liberation struggles. And China, of course, is a socialist country and uh, made common cause with other socialist countries. And that was their, their main uh, agenda in Africa during the 50s and 60s. But that changed. And what changed was the struggle with Taiwan to try to regain the China seat at the Security Council. And so China had to go beyond the socialist countries in order to do that. And they then formed diplomatic ties and battled with Taiwan in order to get diplomatic recognition. And a large part of that was giving aid packages. And so throughout the 1970s, we see these aid packages coming from China into all the countries with whom they formed diplomatic ties. And that went on really until the the late 70s, early 80s, when China went through its own uh, economic transition and they started to think we can't really afford all of this aid. And it really, it was fairly substantial in terms of uh, percentage of their gross domestic product. It was 5% of GDP, I think you said. At one point it was, yeah. And that was mainly um, before they fell out with Vietnam. A lot of that was going into Asia, into right. North Korea, Vietnam, and, and other border countries and, and socialist partners there. So that was an enormous amount. Um, so they then scaled back in Africa, but they didn't go away. And a lot of people believe that after China was there in the 70s, they built the Tanzan Railway that you mentioned, and then they left. But they didn't leave. And so when I arrived in 1983 to study this, I found that there was a, a fair amount of activity. And what they were doing was trying to transition into a business model. And so I wrote an article about this that was published in 1983 in the China Business Review. And it's called Doing Well by Doing Good, China's New Style Foreign Aid. And from 1983 to the present, that's what I've seen happening, is is much more of a linking of aid to business relations, using aid as a springboard for business. And that's something that we've really gotten away from in the West. And that's business for Chinese companies, not necessarily for African companies, but sometimes in joint ventures. So you have a wonderful story in the book about a big... Asian donor making a uh, a large loan to a developing country. Do you want to tell us about that story? <laughs> well, the way I tell it is, once upon a time, 
a large, very poor but resource-rich country just emerging from a period of intense conflict decided to focus on development. And soon they had a visit from a wealthy Asian country that had already become a major consumer of their oil. And this Asian country said to them, we'll make you a bargain. We'll give you a line of credit worth $10 billion, and you can use that to import our technologies. Our companies can help you develop your mines and your ports and your energy infrastructure, and you can repay us with your oil. And this was very controversial in this poor country, but they agreed to the bargain and the work began. And then I usually ask people, if I'm giving this as part of a talk, who were these two countries? So, Owen, you know who these two countries were. But people usually say, oh, Angola, DRC, Sudan. Uh, but actually, sometimes they mention China. And I say, right, China was a large, poor country with oil. And the other country was Japan. And this took place in the 1970s as China was just emerging from the Cultural Revolution. So this kind of pattern of uh, having a, a resource-secured line of credit, uh, something that's win-win for both sides, where each is getting something out of it. The Japanese were happy to get the oil and also to sell their technologies. And they also visioned this whole uh, package as something that would help uh, China transition into being a capitalist country, having loans from abroad, developing their infrastructure, and so on. So it was good for Japan, and it was good for China. I hadn't realized until reading the book that China had consciously modeled its current engagement in Africa on the way Japan had engaged with China. I think in 1978 was, was the date you mentioned as when this deal was finally struck after a long period of negotiation. That's right. I mean, basically, China sees itself as doing in Africa what roughly what Japan did with it. Is that... I think China has looked to Japan as a model um, in a lot of ways because Japan's been a very successful exporter and a very successful moving out in the world and they did this a, a lot earlier than China's done it. Um, Japan did a lot of this in Asia, not just in China but all over Southeast Asia. They used aid funding to uh, help promote Japanese businesses. They built a lot of infrastructure in Southeast Asia, and Japanese companies moved out uh, as it became expensive operating in Japan. So China saw this happening, and they've learned from this, and they've moved out uh, patterning themselves after Japan. And it's, it's not because they're particularly fond of Japan, but they recognize that Japan provides a useful model for them. So the um, Go Global campaign that China established, and again, I didn't realize kind of how systematic this was, the different components, the uh, the lending, the uh, duty-free, uh, tariff-free, quota-free access, the um, overseas zones. That, that is a, an overall strategy kind of modelled on the Japanese strategy of, of, of moving out and, and building external trade links. Is that right? What's, what, what's the logic, what's the purpose of this strategy for China? China's been moving away from being a planned economy very gradually in a very uh, long, lengthy transition for decades now. Uh, but what, when we look at that move toward the market, we sometimes forget that even though it's not a planned economy any longer, they still have plans. And so they're very forward-looking. They look, you know, where do we want to be in a decade? Where do we want to be in two decades? And when they look at Japan, they can see the future. And they can also see where they don't want to be. For example, they don't want the economic stagnation that Japan has now. But they know that China, they knew several decades ago, actually, 
um, I saw in Chinese sources that they were thinking about this in the 1980s, about China going global and how they would be going out. Because the first part of their economic liberalization was about companies coming in, a lot of foreign investment being attracted in. But they knew that Chinese companies would need to go out. And the government wanted to uh, be a step ahead of that to make it easier for them, to sort of both push them and pull them out of the country. And that's what the going global policies are about. And it's a very strategic and, and carefully thought out um, set of uh, procedures and policies and a framework for this to happen. And we can see it, uh, it's not just in Africa, this is actually a small part of their going global. It's in uh, Australia, it's in Latin America, the United States, Europe. Uh, Chinese companies are moving out all around the world and their government is helping them do that. Now, uh, clearly the, the primary motivation of that is in China's economic interest. But um, uh, when China, China would say, Chinese officials would say, um, this is uh, in our mutual interest, this is in their interest and in the interest of the people with whom they're trading. Um, is that right? How, how much are they motivated by that, really? Um, or is that just rhetoric? And how much is it the reality? Does it, to what extent do other countries benefit from that kind of engagement? Well, the kind of engagement we're talking about here is extremely broad. We see it uh, in terms of Chinese companies purchasing assets abroad. We see it in terms of Chinese companies uh, coming over and investing in, in greenfield investments. We see it in terms of trade relationships. And so it's, it's very difficult to draw an overall assessment of this. I think you'd have to look at, at uh, different cases in order to find out whether it's been beneficial or not. And you could say the same for any large power and its economic relationships overseas. I think that the Chinese do have a, a sense that foreign investment was very beneficial for China. They wanted to invite in foreign investment, but they also did it strategically. Um, and so they believe that their foreign investment going abroad is also beneficial. And the same thing with trade relationships. They think that trade is a good thing. Obviously, they've been doing a lot. And they're very conscious of the trade balance with different countries. It's something they report on every year, you know, how much they're bringing in from that country, how much they're sending out to that country, and what they can do about that. Because they know that the trade balance can be very sensitive politically. And so in that sense, they have an incentive to make it be of mutual benefit. One of our listeners, Peter, asked on the Facebook group for Development Drums, asked me to ask you about the evidence um, for Chinese firms as they do this, bringing innovative business practices, bringing technologies to developing countries. I mean, that one of the advantages of, of that kind of trading relationship is, is, is technology transfer. Do we know whether that happens much and, and whether there's evidence of that kind of benefit in Chinese engagement? There's very little systematic analysis of this. Um, and my own evidence is purely anecdotal. Um, I can see uh, a number of companies that I've looked at and uh, have interviewed where there is a, a higher technology being brought in than what's existing locally. That doesn't mean that that technology would be considered high technology if it came to the United States. It's definitely um, the pattern in general of countries moving out um, has been that they're often casting off the technologies that they are outgrowing. That's what Japan did. It was called the flying geese model, where they would move out um, their uh, mature technologies that they were outgrowing at home, and they would move those off to other countries. And that's what the United States has done. That's the whole pattern. It's called the international product cycle 
as well. And so in that sense, it's not the, the most high-tech uh, technologies that are being sent abroad. Those are still at home. But they still might be higher than is available in the country where they're moving to. I think that is a pattern. And so these are attractive technologies in most of the places where they're going. Can we focus for a while on natural resources? Because part of the narrative that you get, particularly in the Western media, is that this is in some sense an effort by China to um, corner a part of the market in natural resources. And Alex Evans, who is a listener to Development Drums and in fact was um, a guest on the last episode, uh, has asked me to ask you this. He says, I, I take on board Deborah's argument that China can get singled out unfairly on resource access deals. People are always talking about China's scramble for resources and no one ever seems to talk about the US support for Equatorial Guinea or Uzbekistan, which seem to me about as bad a regime as, as you can support. But nonetheless, if, is what's happening a kind of preparation for the day when we begin to run out of oil or begin to run out of land or begin to run out of minerals and where it really is a zero-sum game. If China's getting access to them, then other parts of uh, the industrialised world are not. And are they hedging against that scenario? Is that actually what's going on, that they are preparing for the possibility that there may be resource constraints and they need to have, um, for their own security, economic security, uh, a claim on a part of those resources? Well, I would say a couple of things to address that. Um, first of all, I remember when the, the book The Limits of Growth came out in 1971 and they were predicting that we were going to run out of all sorts of resources and they had all of these um, fancy econometric models to show just how we would by 1990 or by 2000 we would be totally out of this, that or the other resource. So I think that uh, as prices rise we're going to be finding new technologies that were, will enable us to access I'm more of an optimist on that regard. But um, so that's just one point to make. Simon Rodman <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> I suppose I am when it comes down to that. But um, I think that, that what people like uh, Erica Downs have shown in her examination of China's engagement in oil is that what they're actually doing is that they're adding to the amount, the pool that's available. Um, and so that means that there's more for everybody. Right. Um, China's demand for uh, oil and other resources is enormous, but we have to keep in mind that that demand is partly being translated into products that they're making for the rest of the world and exporting to us. And so in, in essence, we are still consuming those resources. We're just, they're translating through China rather than translating through our own countries directly. So they're consuming a lot. They're um, looking forward to be consuming even more, but um, in essence, they're they're really consuming it on our behalf, and we're the final consumers of those right. resources. Right, so they're, they're becoming intermediate. Exactly, right. they're and the intermediate. A, a lot of the trade statistics are a bit misleading in this respect, because China's re-exporting things that they've imported from elsewhere, so it's, it's more triangular. But I, I'm not sure that you're, um, you're quite nailing the question of, deep down, is this in part a, an energy and food and natural resource security play? by China or you know as you say they you know uh, they look ahead they think strategically is mm. that do you think that's in part what motivates them here that they they want to be sure that um, their influence is such in in the world that they're able to get access to those resources for many years to come I think if one looks at Chinese engagement in Africa the overarching 
uh, theme there is resources. And of course, that's the case with other powers that are engaging in Africa. The overarching theme is, is also resources, because this is what Africa has. Now, is it an attempt uh, to lock up resources for the future? Um, I really, one doesn't know at this point if there's, and I haven't seen um, a lot of discussion about trying to control resources or try to keep them in Chinese hands so that they can have access to them. There is um, a small but noticeable theme of, of concern in China that at some point they may have to face an embargo or they may face some kind of political um, effort to cut them off from resources. And when they do discuss this, they usually mention the United States. So the United States may try for some kind of political reason to uh, embargo or, or uh, impede Chinese access to resources. And in that case, it would be good to have their own sources that they feel more secure about. But this is not, this is usually by political commentators, not the government itself and in its own writing. And so I think that's uh, because, of course, we did embargo China for 23 years or so into, uh, from 1950 in the Korean War until the 1970s. So they have had that experience. And there are people with long memories that uh, keep that in mind. But I think it's, um, I really see this as much more a commercial thing where they're going out, they're trying to um, buy up as many assets as they can in a kind of counter-cyclical way. And uh, they're looking not just to export that back to China, but these companies are exporting, you know, they're selling on the London um, minerals exchanges and they're selling to wherever the most profitable place is for them to sell. Can you, I, I was very interested in the book in, in the description you have of the way that China supports uh, and invests in this in a way that's different, say, from a Western oil company. So a Western oil company will come and give a lot of money to the government of Angola or Nigeria in return for oil. China's approach, uh, caricature, but has been a bit different than that in terms of actually investing itself in the infrastructure and being repaid in commodities. Can you say something about that difference between the way they're doing it in a more tied way and some of the advantages and disadvantages of that? Well, there are really two general patterns that we see. One is that uh, Chinese mineral and oil companies are going abroad and investing. Um, and this is done in a way that's very similar to Western companies investing, and it's not related to these tie packages. So that's one pattern, is just going and investing and bidding in tenders um, and competing along with the, the majors. So, pattern one. Uh, pattern two is where these packages get developed, and these are ones that bring in Chinese banks, uh, particularly the China Export Credit Agency, which is a China Exim Bank, and increasingly the China Development Bank. So these banks are the ones that offer the lines of credit. And then construction companies are the other major partners in these deals. And uh, in some of the companies, or some of the deals that we've seen, there isn't even a, a major Chinese resource company involved. So in the case of the DRC, this very large, what was originally a $9 billion package, was scaled back to $6 billion. There was no Chinese mineral company involved in that package. And the construction companies themselves are, through new subsidiaries, developing this copper mine. Um, and so it really does seem to me that for them, the infrastructure component of this package is the more important part. So 
that's the second model in which you have this package in which there's finance coming in and it's secured with the natural resource which then can be developed. But it's not so much finance coming in as as the Chinese firm actually coming and building the infrastructure. I mean, the money never really touches the sides in the developing country system, right? This is not money that's being paid to governments or firms in the country. So, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a strong form of Tide Aid or kind of pro- and project aid, in, if, if you think of it as an aid program, although it's more of an economic investment. But it has the advantage that that money genuinely does end up being invested in the infrastructure. I wouldn't call it aid because it's these deals are all on commercial terms. And so that's why it's something that we don't we don't have this kind of package in the West. It's developmental, but it isn't aid or it isn't official development assistance. And when it comes down to it, we don't really have a good definition of what is aid. Uh, when ExxonMobil comes in and invests in a country, we don't usually call that aid. Uh, there can be a developmental impact there. but um, So I would look at the Chinese packages as ones that are really based on commercial relationships. And they're based, uh, they are going into countries where they think the countries have a natural resource that can repay this kind of investment um, or repay the kinds of loans. And so that's why they see it as a, a rich country that can use this. And it's, it's dependable enough that there's a, a, a line of resources coming out that can secure these kinds of packages. One more thing about these packages that the Chinese have set up. When you hear about a $2 billion or $3 billion financing package, um, one might assume that that money is coming into the local government, but actually the money never comes in. It stays in China and it's being used to finance Chinese companies to do this work. So when they do a portion of the work, they submit their bills for that and the local government approves it and sends it back to China and then they're paid out of the Chinese bank into their Chinese bank account. So the money doesn't come in. And the Chinese actually look at this as a way to um, avoid the embezzlement and the corruption problems that they would otherwise face. And it, it, it does work well for that. One of our listeners, Janet, asked on Twitter whether what the reality is about the rumours of Chinese firms and investors mainly using Chinese labour. And we know here in Ethiopia and in other countries there's been a certain amount of uh, dissatisfaction spilling over into violence um, as a result of the perception that um, instead of using African labour, um, Chinese firms are unnecessarily bringing in Chinese labour. What's, what's the reality of this? The reality is is that it varies enormously. There are countries in which uh, the use of Chinese labor is quite high. Uh, Angola is one example there. Um, And in Angola, from the data that I've been able to gather, it's about um, 55% Angolan and 45% Chinese on average in construction projects there. That's a pretty high proportion of imported labor. It is. Um, There are other examples where it's even higher. Um, I heard recently here in Ethiopia about a, a dam project that's being done by Sinohydro. And they reported that it was um, about one, uh, 1,000 Chinese workers, excuse me, 1,000 um, Ethiopian workers and 9,000 Chinese workers. Now, I wasn't able to confirm that, but um, that was the report. Um, there's a Chinese cement factory here in Ethiopia in which the ratio is 20% Chinese and 80% Ethiopian. 
Um, I found that on average across Africa, in the anecdotes that I've collected on this, it does turn out to be about 20% Chinese and 80% uh, African workers in any given project. Uh, where the proportions tend to be larger in terms of local workers is in factories. And this makes sense because this is a... Um, a fixed uh, investment which is going on for a long time. It's not a, a temporary and quick project like a construction project. So where you tend to see the largest number of Chinese workers is in construction projects that are being done by companies that are new in that country. Even in Angola, uh, my colleague Tang Xiaoyang found that if a Chinese company had been there for five years, their ratio of Angolan workers was twice as big as a Chinese company that had just come over. So it depends on a lot of things, on the local work permit rules and how uh, restrictive or permissive they are and how much they're enforced, and on whether the Chinese company finds that it can find the skilled and semi-skilled workers that it needs. What do we know about the, the kinds of Chinese people that are coming over? The, what, one rumor that goes around often is that um, some of these people are um, prisoners who were uh, offered uh, a shortening of their um, prison term in return for coming and working. Um, and you hear that, I've never seen that verified, but you hear that rumour a lot here in Addis. What do we know, of, what, what's, who, what kind of people are these that are coming and what, what's the truth about prison labour? I've also heard those rumours about prison labour in Africa and other places where Chinese companies are working, Sri Lanka for example. And I've never seen any evidence or any verification of them. Uh, I doubt it would happen myself, certainly not with official Chinese companies. Perhaps it could happen uh, unofficially. But I think why this rumor arises is the conditions under which Chinese laborers work over here, which is quite similar to the way they work in China. They live in barracks kinds of arrangements, very simple in dormitories. Usually those barracks have a fence around them, which is to keep out thieves rather than to keep the Chinese in. They don't uh, interact with local people because they don't speak the language and they are all trying to save their money, what little money they have, in order to send it back to China. Uh, there's a saying in China, chirku, which means eat bitterness. And this is how the Chinese workers that come to Africa are eating bitterness for a while and then they're going back home with more money. Somewhat in distinction from Western aid workers who do Very not much. live on compounds. <laughs> Very much bitterness. so. It's uh, one of the hallmarks of Chinese aid from the very beginning has been this distinction between uh, how they, they actually set themselves apart from the Russians at first. And they said that Chinese aid workers will live at the level of their local counterparts. And what we find is that the aid workers actually these days are living below the level of their local counterparts. And that's the case for Chinese construction workers even when it isn't aid. Can we turn to environmental implications of China's engagement? Another criticism or, or worry you often hear is that China has lower environmental standards than, for example, the World Bank or Western donors or companies would, would like to maintain. And you get examples like here in Ethiopia where financing for a big dam project from the World Bank fell through because of the environmental appraisal. Uh, in steps China and funds it. That's, uh, it. It's hard to tell how true that is or whether the environmental appraisal was really the trigger. But what do you think is, what's the truth here? Is China maintaining lower environmental standards? Is that bad? Are they somehow breaking a cartel uh, that we ought to be trying to sustain to, to leverage up environmental standards? Um, China's own record 
on environmental standards is not very high. Uh, we can see this with regard to the pollution in Beijing, which is really dreadful, um, and the hydropower projects that have gone on, uh, including the, the very large Three Gorges Dam, all of these have would not have been approved by the World Bank. And the Chinese do have lower standards, and they're exporting those standards to Africa. Now, um, in the case of hydropower dams, my own sense is that our standards have possibly gotten too stringent, that um, we in the West have developed our hydropower and other parts of the world have also developed their hydropower. And in Africa, the hydropower potential is enormous and the amount that has been developed is very, very small. And hydropower does provide a renewable energy source and for many countries, they're very keen to have this. And so the Chinese are much more willing to go ahead. Now, it's not true that they don't do environmental appraisals. Um, I was speaking with the head of the China Exim Bank um, a couple of years ago in Beijing, and he told me that they are now using uh, Western environmental appraisers to do the impact assessments. And so they've gone to Switzerland, they've got, um, they I think have another, another company in the Netherlands that have been doing these appraisals for them because they want to get beyond reproach in this uh, area, but they haven't published any of these appraisals, so it's a little difficult to to see the rigor with which um, they're approaching this issue. But I think this is a, an area where I would say the there is room for concern. Hannah, who is uh, an economist working for one of the large aid, large aid agencies, asks on Facebook whether there's any evidence of China investing in low carbon uh, investments in Africa. Is there some, you know, are all their investments um, worrying and potentially dirty, or are they also getting into some of the uh, some of the potentially valuable uh, environmentally friendly investments that that might well be in the future? That's an interesting question. Um, in Sharm el Sheikh in 2009, the Chinese made another round of pledges for their engagement in Africa. And one of the pledges was that they were going to set up 100 uh, renewable energy projects across Africa. And I see this very much as a way to introduce Chinese um, renewable energy technologies into this market. It'll be done first as grants and gifts, and then hopefully people will like these and will want to purchase more of them. Uh, we all know now that China itself is becoming a leader in renewable energy technologies, and they want to be very much ahead of the curve on this. And so Africa is a way to, to test some of these out. And uh, I've seen wind power investments, um, solar cell investments, geothermal investments. So there are a lot of different kinds of projects that are are coming on stream both as aid projects and as commercial projects. So it is a very interesting area. Can we talk about um, debt? One of the worries that you often hear from Western donors is that um, this commercial engagement that we're talking about with, with loans at commercial rates risks creating for Africa a new debt crisis that Africa will take on uh, loans that it, that it can't repay in the future. What, what's your sense of whether that's a, a risk that we should be uh, taking seriously? There is a lot of money coming into Africa from China. And so in the aggregate, it, it looks quite worrying. 
When you follow the individual large loans that are coming in, they are usually going to countries that have that are currently generating a lot of natural resource exports that can repay these loans or have the potential to do that. So that's kind of Angola, Nigeria, what else? Well, Nigeria hasn't actually gotten one of these large okay. loans. It was under negotiation, but it fell through. So uh, Angola, the DRC, Equatorial Guinea, right. um, and then smaller packages going into Niger, uh, f again for oil, Chad, again for oil. Um, and there are other examples. Um, Ghana, for example, is a, a recent package is under negotiation. And uh, Zimbabwe, yes, there's been a package there that's been negotiated um, since at least 2006 and maybe close to realization now. So that's five years of negotiations for that package. Um, one you, these are some of these are countries that have had debt relief under mm -hmm. the HIPIC yes. terms. So you can see why Western countries are anxious at the idea that you know Western countries give debt relief and then China builds up a whole new set of debt obligations in countries you know, countries like Chad or Niger. You could imagine having difficulties repaying debt in the future. You could imagine that, except that in both of the instances that you mentioned, Chad and Niger, this money is coming in to develop a resource, right. and so they there will be um, an increase in the foreign exchange that's available to repay the debt. And so I see the Chinese being very strategic about this. They are, one could look at it as being free riding on the debt relief from um, the Western donors in the past, which was relieving debt that came mostly from export credit agencies and not so much from aid. Um, but I see it as being more strategic in that regard because it's not these loans are not going in everywhere they're not going into the most of the poor hippic countries that that happen not to have a a resource that can secure these loans so and and that's why i think it's also important to to see that this money is coming in not just um and these infrastructure projects are not coming in just as a sort of desperate search for resources but it's part of a well thought out package where the resource um that is in the ground today can be used in the future to repay the loan that is being used for infrastructure. And so that's kind of a neat package. Ethiopia is one example where that model doesn't quite fit. Now, there is a, a very large telecommunications project here that is actually funded by a supplier credit um, to uh, ZTE, or Zhongxing Telecommunications. And that's a $1.5 billion contract. And my understanding is that there's a, an arrangement whereby all of the exports that, from Ethiopia, which is mostly sesame seeds, I think, um, are channeled through one particular bank in Ethiopia. And that that uh, arrangement, I suspect, although I haven't had this confirmed, is probably done to secure either that large ZTE supplier credit or um, a $500 million uh, preferential export credit that the Chinese Exim Bank has made here in Ethiopia. So it's, it's um, sesame is not a natural resource when normally looks at the Chinese being desperate to secure. But um, so that's a case where it's possible that there is um, a, a debt being taken on that, that isn't explicitly linked to a natural resource flow that will be able to repay it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how they're planning to repay that that 1.5 billion dollar telecommunications loan. One of the things that I um, was very struck by in your book was. Um, 
the the extent to which Western fears are exaggerated, very heavy exaggeration of how how engaged China is in Africa, the amount of aid, the amount you know the the numbers you described earlier are much smaller than newspaper articles would have you believe. And there's you know talk about rogue donor and you know really a lot of quite alarmist language about China's role in Africa. Um, I'm interested in part why you think that is. But in particular, whether um, China's lack of transparency um, is part of the problem here, that because we don't know, because there's no easy way to see what China is doing, people's imaginations begin to, to run wild. What, do you think there is a possibility that China will begin to open up a bit more about what it's doing and, and to be, partly to counter some of this Western paranoia? I think transparency on the part of the Chinese would be enormously helpful in countering this. And I see transparency changing and improving. Um, today, it's much easier to get uh, individual figures on a country-by-country -country basis from Chinese officials. I've been able to get uh, aid figures in a lot of different countries from the Chinese. Um, and many of them are now posting these aid figures on the website. There'll be an interview with a Chinese ambassador and it'll be posted on the Chinese embassy website in which uh, they give the figures for aid. So, But what we're not getting yet is uh, much transparency on the commercial figures. The World Bank and the IMF have been really pushing countries to do this. Um, in fact, I've understood in some places they've been making IMF packages conditional on the country being transparent and reporting all of the details of their engagement with new financiers like the Chinese. And so that might uh, force additional degrees of transparency. The numbers are out there because the countries know them. Right. And the ministries of finance know them. But it's a matter of, of pulling it all together. Now, but that's one part of this whole uh, concern about China, the paranoia, as you put it. The other part, I think, really comes from this uh, idea, this delight, I think, that the Western media takes in the, the China threat scenario. It's, you can look at the Economist covers, you know, for the past year, it seems like about half of them have had China on. It's, it's kind of like the way it used to be with uh, Princess Diana selling People magazine. <laughs> now uh, China sells the Economist. And it's not very different from what they, we used to, the way people used to talk about Japan. 30 years ago, is it? Oh, it's very similar. And what I see you have combined in China's rise is this concern about the economic threat that Japan represented uh, 30 years ago and the Red Scare idea of communism that was embodied in the Soviet Union. So you've got those two together in one country, and it's just a wonderful combination for the media. Um, just to go back to transparency, a couple of listeners have asked about this, so let me let me uh, uh, press you a bit further on it. Melissa Hall wonders whether there are incentives for China, whether there are incentives for China to be more transparent. And both she and Kerry Smith, as a former colleague of mine, ask about China's likely engagement in the high-level forum in Busan later this year on aid effectiveness. Are those, do you think there's any likelihood that China might see that this kind of paranoia about what it's doing will, will bring it to the table of you know, providing information to the DAC or participating more actively in those kinds of 
um, donor processes and uh, to, to try to make aid more effective? Or do they just regard that as, n as not their kind of thing? I'm hopeful that there will eventually be greater transparency because I think there's there's no real reason uh, against it. The, the reason why they aren't transparent is domestic um, and it has to do with concerns about uh, how the Chinese public would react to aid that's being given by what's still only a middle-income country with a lot of poverty itself. And particularly when it becomes transparent about the large amounts of aid that are going to places like North Korea. Yeah, there would be concern about that. But I, I think they can overcome that. Now, the question would be, how do they uh, publish those figures? And would they publish them with the DAC? Now, the DAC is, is problematic. There are non-OECD members that do submit their aid figures to the DAC. That is one possible pattern that the Chinese could follow. However, you can see this with the Middle East, for example. They do submit their figures, and they're not members of the DAC. China can't become a member of the OECD, and uh, that's a real constraint. And I think it's, it's very interesting that we've set up... Um, in the West and including Japan, we've set up a, a set of institutions for managing our relationships with the global south or developing countries that are headquartered in Paris. And the rules and the norms uh, for aid are all set by the northern countries. And now we have these southern donors coming in. And they're not part of these institutions. And so, and they're expected to follow all these rules that they didn't make. So what's going to happen? Um, Will the Chinese be brought in to a, a club of which they can't become a member? I think it's problematic. Do you think it's possible that the UN Development Corporation Forum will become a, a venue in which China might feel that there's a more, you know, it's, it's more legitimate, it's more inclusive, they're a member? Could that over time take the role that the DAC has played? That's possible. Um, that would also have to have buy-in from the other donors, the, the traditional donors, and I'm not sure that would happen. They've always resisted having the UN be the forum for these rules and norms, but that may be backfiring right now. I do think it's quite, um, it, it's more likely that the Chinese would join in a UN kind of endeavor, and we can see this in a lot of other areas that have nothing to do with aid. For example, arms control. If arms control was all being done through the OECD, I'm not sure we would have the Chinese engaging uh, to the extent they have. And they've been very active in arms control um, fora and arms control treaties that have come out of the UN. So I, I do think the UN is the, uh, that's the place where they're most likely to engage. We, we're coming to the end of uh, three days of a, a China DAC learning uh, meeting here in Addis Ababa and I'd just like to focus at the end of this discussion on on two things one is what can Western donors learn from China and then we'll come to what China can learn from Western donors so let, let's begin with um, what you think Western donors should be learning from China um, and I, I may be reading between the lines too much in your book but you seem to be um, quite supportive of the way they invest in infrastructure, their focus on jobs and trade. Um, you, the way you describe the, their investments as being less um, susceptible to corruption and diversion seems to be attractive. Um, in fact, I think at one point you say it's a, a solution to the resource curse. 
um, you praise their experimentation, that they don't try and impose a view from Beijing. So uh, it sounds to me like you're quite impressed by the way China engages in Africa, both in terms of aid and in terms of other economic engagement. What, what parts of that do you think Western donors should be learning from and adopting and adapting? I would say there are two parts. Um, one is the content of aid. And you've just mentioned all the things that I would emphasize, and that is that the, the Chinese believe that infrastructure is really the sine qua non for development, that you have to have that first. In fact, there's a saying in China, which is if you want to become wealthy, first build a road. And so they apply that here in Africa. And this is what African countries are asking for. They're asking for infrastructure. They're asking for roads. They're asking for power plants. Uh, they're asking for the basic uh, framework for economic development. And without that framework in place, you can't really move on in your productive sectors. I remember talking to a, a Chinese um, ag agriculturalist who was in Sierra Leone with the South-South, uh, which is an FAO-supported South-South uh, cooperation activity. And he said that he had tried to get a lot of Chinese interested in investing in Sierra Leone in the agricultural sector. And some came and visited, and they went out to where he was located, which was about, uh, what should have been a two-hour drive from the capital, and often took a lot longer. And they said, we're not going to invest here. There's no power. <laughs> you know, the roads are terrible. Why would we come here? Right. You know, we're used to being able to just flick a switch, and, you know, we can start a machine going for agro-processing, and, and here you don't have that. So I think those kinds of the basic infrastructure which the Chinese are putting in, and it's uh, it's not just roads and power, it's also telecommunications. They're building the telecommunications networks across Africa. So now we can get cell phone, um, we can uh, use our cell phones way out in the rural areas, and Africans can too, because uh, in large part because of Chinese engagement. So I think all of those things are, are very positive. The other thing that they're very interested in is productive activities. So they're interested in manufacturing. They're interested in, in more commercial agriculture. And so these kinds of things are, I think, a benefit to the continent. Now, the second thing that I think we can learn from them is uh, that they really practice what they preach in terms of local ownership. Now, we also speak about local ownership as something that's really important, and we don't practice it very well. It's been part of the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness. It's been something that we've known for a long time. We need to do more of letting local countries take the lead. But we still really haven't gotten away from, we're still writing the, the poverty reduction strategy papers, and we're, we're still writing our own develop, five-year development strategies for this country, and we're not really following what they have set out as, as what they want us to, to partner with them. Can I, on that, I mean, you, you quote in the book, as, as I think it's a finance minister in Sierra Leone who says, you know, when Western donors come here, they tell us, you know, you have to show us how many teachers you've got and where are you going to get the recurrent costs from and how, you know, they would, whereas the Chinese just come and build the school. Um, but isn't that in part because Western donors have learned that if you just come and build the school and there are no teachers and there are no textbooks and there's no recurrent cost financing, then it's useless and the whole thing falls apart. So isn't some of this, uh, you know, you could call it conditionality or lack of ownership, but actually part of this is Western aid donors having learned over 50 years what, at least what doesn't work. And what doesn't work, uh, you know, you can see why donors don't want to come and just build whatever it is that some 
some ministry or some uh, official says they want built. And they do actually do some due diligence to make sure the thing is going to fit within the national plan and be part of the national strategy and is going to be. So uh, is it really more effective aid to say, well, we're going to respect local ownership or is it more effective aid to say we're going to um, uh, we're going to make some choices based on what we've learned as donors um, in the way that Western donors are, are partly doing? I think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, the the sectors that we've been supporting through Western Aid have really shifted over the past few decades, and they've they've shifted according to the development fashions of the day. And so, right now, we've been supporting the social sectors, and so there's a lot of money going into health. Um, and when we look at at the needs, even in health, we can see that there's more going into HIV/AIDS than uh, is going into things like malaria although that's been changing. But it's been, um, we're focusing on the, on the priorities that we've determined for Africa. And so in, in that sense, it's a much larger question of ownership, that uh, what we're doing in aid is going along with what, what we own in terms of our priorities. But the point that you made about looking at the uh, ability of, of a country to finance recurrent costs for an investment is a very important one. And that's what I would bring up for what the Chinese need to learn from us. Right. Because there's a whole component to their aid, which is um, these prestige projects that uh, might be a, right. a stadium, or convention center, or the ones that come along purely out of diplomacy, which are these schools and hospitals that are being set up uh, around uh, the continent. I think they're building 30 hospitals, and there hasn't—they they don't have a long-term strategy for this. They don't. Once the hospital's being built, it's been handed over. There was some discussion at one point about um, a more coordinated program about training African uh, personnel to go into these hospitals. But the hospital's been built, and in many instances, they're just standing there empty. Or malaria centers have been built, and uh, the Chinese built them, equipped them, and then they went home. And now the, all the instructions are in Chinese, and the malaria medications are in boxes, and nobody really knows what to do with them because the... the right. So that does seem to be making some of the mistakes that we've made in the past and oh, probably and still make today sometimes. So. And the Chinese have made those mistakes in the past too. One of the things that they have done um, in many instances with this kind of, of uh, investment um, in these more diplomatic projects is that they've returned again to um, renovate them and refurbish them and, and make them uh, sustainable from a physical point of view. Um, and sometimes they've uh, sent revolving teams in Sierra Leone again. Uh, they've done this in agriculture for three decades. They've had these revolving teams coming in. But their idea is really they don't want to continue doing that kind of long-term revolving teams of Chinese. And their re rejoinder to this concern would be that they would say that they usually do train people or they ask for people to be trained. And then when uh, the government doesn't uh, second people to them for training, uh, they just complete it and then right. they go home. And so that um, they would say they do have a, a process in place to transfer the technology and train people, but there has to be uh, a partner to provide those personnel on the other side, and that often doesn't happen. Looking ahead, what's your hunch? One version of this is that China has, has is competing with 
Western donors and Western engagement in Africa, and that that will be to everyone's benefit. That some of the that Western donors are being exposed as slow and bureaucratic, as not focusing on economic growth and things that people in developing countries want focused on, and that this will this will drive a change in Western aid practices and Western engagement, and that's a good thing. Um, another version, I suppose, would be that these just continue to run on parallel tracks, that the Chinese do the railways and they do the roads and, you know, the UK and the World Bank do the hospitals and the schools and that that's a perfectly sensible division of labour. What, what's your sense of, of where this will go? Do you think there'll be a convergence or do you think there'll be conflict? And, and particularly reflecting on, on the days here of the China DAC learning What's your sense of, of how this will uh, how this will pan out? In some sense, I already see convergence happening, and you can see that in the the sort of uh, U-shaped curve for financing for infrastructure. It's gone. It had gone down, down, down for a couple of decades, and now it's going up again. So we're seeing a lot more attention uh, to infrastructure and realization of that being a, a really essential component for western donors for western right. donors yes okay. the pendulum has swung back exactly and i think a lot of that has to do with the chinese attention to that sector and the western donors realizing they don't want to be left out of it um, and we also see more attention now to uh, growth uh, this is no longer <laughs> looked at as a uh, uh, something that's um, inappropriate for aid to focus on, but that economic growth, um, which is something that African countries want. And they don't want it just to be based on high commodity prices. They want it to be something more sustainable. So, um, focus. of course, the World Bank has always been focused on growth, but there's been such a, uh, a push away from that um, in Africa towards NGOs and the social sector. So I think that's that's a really welcome change and that's already uh, happening. Now, in terms of, I think there will continue to be parallel tracks for, for quite a while because there have been efforts to try to get the Chinese involved in trilateral cooperation, but these have been very small and very um, uh, unsystematic and the Chinese have not been very uh, open to this. Now, I can see from their point of view they're learning about things like doing proper evaluations. They haven't done proper evaluations of their projects. It's a much more kind of engineering model where you just come in, you build it, and you go. Um, you don't look at the long-term impact. You don't look at uh, what happens five, ten years down the line. And in agriculture, for example, they're, they're learning. I've been in discussions with uh, the people at the Ministry of Agriculture, and they're trying to learn about how to actually evaluate their agricultural projects now. They're at a very early stage of doing the kinds of more systematic um, reviews of things like agriculture projects, things that we've been doing for a long time in the West. And so once they start to learn perhaps about the um, some of the problems that these projects have had, as well as some of the benefits they've provided, uh, they may come closer to the Western practices and there may be more cooperation. So uh, kind of long-term long convergences, uh, but, but, but not anytime soon. I suspect the, the best case scenario will be something like Japan. Uh, Japan's a member of the OECD, they're a member of the DAC, but their practices have been different from a lot of the Western donors, and, and still today. For example, the Japanese really resisted debt relief because they felt that, um, that countries should repay their loans and that there was a problem about creditworthiness and that these, the problem about not being creditworthy was perhaps a bigger one than... Um, 
than getting the debt relief uh, in the short-term solution. So they've also been much more focused on infrastructure, much more focused on productive activities compared with uh, the Western, the European and U.S. So I think that uh, the best-case scenario is that we'll see China becoming more like Japan. Deborah Bradkin, thanks for coming on Development Runs. My pleasure. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guest today has been Deborah Brattingham, whose book is called The Dragon's Gift. My apologies once again for the background noise.